I know we're already well into uh, this part of the week uh, of the year, and so uh, I still, however, want to wish all of you God's very best uh, for the coming year. Notice I said God's very best for us all, because sometimes what we think is best and what God thinks is best aren't exactly the same. Isn't that true? I uh, can recall more than one time when something happened in my life, and I... um, I really didn't think it was God's best for me. Uh, In fact, didn't think that at all. But many years later, in hindsight, I'd look back and I couldn't dispute the fact that it was. That that God had my best interest at heart and uh, that his way is the best way, even though it wasn't making any sense to me at the time. Um, I saw this principle at work at our Christmas Eve services just about 10 days ago. Uh, Probably more than 50% of you were uh, away from Calgary visiting your family, wherever it is you come from. But we still had thousands of people uh, come to our Christmas Eve services in um, minus 25 degree weather. And uh, just to make things a little interesting, there was a water main break uh, somewhere near the church. So they turned our water off. And uh, so uh, we were uh, somewhat concerned, particularly about bathrooms, wondering about what kind of signs to put up and so forth. Um, But um, it turned out that people had to haul their own water to use the washrooms either that or hold tight for about 90 minutes. Um, Our staff had to use porta-potties. And uh, worst of all, we weren't able to serve coffee. I mean, uh, can you imagine? I mean, how on earth is God going to move when without coffee? I mean, just bad news. And I'm thinking, Lord, not a great time for a water break. And yet, despite all of that, 20 people had the courage to fill out a response card, letting us know that they prayed for the very first time to invite Jesus into their lives. And I think that's worth celebrating. So here we are facing another year. And, you know, my observation is that um, people seem to reflect more deeply about life and the meaning of life this time of year. Every year between Christmas and New Year's, uh, I talk to people uh, who have been thinking uh, about the direction of their life. They've been thinking about the level of satisfaction of their life, the purpose of their life. And they often come to me and they say things like, you know, I don't know what it is. I have everything that I could want, but my life is empty. My life is meaningless, has no purpose. One of the, my favorite actors over the years has been Patrick Swayze, who passed away uh, a number of years ago now. This popular, wealthy man who had one blockbuster hit, uh, movie hit after another, said in an interview, it's true that this is what I've always dreamed of. But once I got here, I wondered why I felt so empty. I'm not satisfied with what I've got, and I have nobody to complain to. And what Swayze was verbalizing is the frustration And the emptiness that people feel when they place their hopes and their dreams on the temporary things of life rather than on the eternal things of God. The psalmist said it best. He said, my soul finds rest in God alone. In God alone. But so many people today, the tendency is they ignore God or they just keep God at a safe, comfortable distance and they try to somehow find fulfillment in something other than God. And yet the best of human life is utterly and ultimately disappointing. We've all known or we've read about people like Swayze who had it all and yet they were still miserable. Sooner or later, even the greatest optimist must face the fact that if he places all of his hopes and his dreams and his his ambitions in his work or earthly success or his possessions or fame or even his loved ones, he's going to be greatly disappointed one day because when he comes to that place of breathing his last, he's going to have to say goodbye to all these things, including those that he loves. Now, Jesus came to tell us that we were made for so much more. He came to warn us not to sell our soul to the temporary kingdom of this world, 
with all of its seductive voices and all of its allurements. Rather, he came to bring hope and unspeakable joy and a lasting purpose by inviting us to be part of his eternal kingdom. With that in mind, I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, in which we find Jesus at the height of his ministry. We're in the Sermon on the Mount. We're working our way through his sermon. And thousands of people, if you read at the end of chapter 4, thousands of people have been following him around the countryside. And many have gathered on a hillside or a mountainside just north of the Sea of Galilee to hear him give his sermon on the Mount, in which he paints a picture, a verbal picture, of a new kind of community under the rule of a new king, King Jesus. A community with a new kind of life, with new attitudes, values, and passions that are upside down or right side up from the way that society is today. Jesus says, people who are part of my kingdom are blessed. In other words, they're content, they're satisfied, they're joyful, and he invites us to be part of it. Beginning in verse 3, Jesus says that those who belong to his kingdom and acknowledge him as their Lord and King will increasingly display the following supernatural evidences of God's spirit working in their lives. He says they are humble and dependent on God for their salvation and direction in life. Blessed are the poor in spirit. He says they grieve over, they repent of their sin, and they weep over the things that break God's heart. Blessed are those who mourn. They're not preoccupied with themselves. Blessed are the meek. They crave to know Jesus and to be like Jesus. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They extend grace forgiveness and compassion to others blessed are the merciful they have a single-minded devotion to seek God and his agenda blessed are the pure in heart they're devoted to helping people be at peace with God and with one another blessed are the peacemakers they expect resistance and to pay a high price for living all out for Jesus Blessed are the persecuted because of righteousness. Now, even though no person outside of Jesus himself is capable of living out these beatitudes perfectly, in verse 13, Jesus says, when his followers increasingly display these characteristics in and through their lives, they will be people of influence. They can't help but be. They will be people who point others not only to God, but also to the truth of God. He said, you are the salt of the earth. He said, you are the light of the world. And church, that is why we are still here on earth and not in heaven. When Jesus becomes our king, when he becomes the center of our universe, he not only changes us on the inside, but, he also changed, but, he, but as he changes us, he uses us to change our world. And that's a purpose not only worth living for, but dying for. And so as we stand at the threshold of a new year, I can't think of a better time to ask you this question. When you examine your life, when you examine your values and your priorities and what it is that makes your adrenaline flow, which kingdom are you really giving your life to? Are you giving it to the kingdom of Patrick Swayze? Or are you giving it to the kingdom that Jesus is describing here in his sermon? Jesus longs for us to be part of his eternal kingdom. And it's with that in mind that he now shifts gears here in the scriptures to ensure that we know how to become part of his kingdom. This passage we're looking at today is a complex passage to understand, but it's a very vital passage. So I'm going to ask you that you would stand with me as we read a portion of it together. (laughs) 
Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Thank you. You may be seated. Our Heavenly Father, I just want to ask that you would open our eyes, you would open our ears, you would focus our minds, and that, Lord, we would really hear what Jesus is teaching us here about his kingdom and about entry into the kingdom. For I pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Now, in this passage, when Jesus refers to the law and the prophets, what he's talking about is essentially the Old Testament in your Bible. The law consists of three parts. It consists of the moral law, the civil law, and the ceremonial law. The moral law includes the Ten Commandments and other similar moral principles that we find throughout the Old Testament. It applies to everyone. The civil law was given to the nation of Israel to help it govern itself as a theocracy of God. The ceremonial law were offerings and sacrifices for Israel's worship of God. So when Jesus talks about the prophets, remember he says the law and the prophets, when he talks about the prophets, he's referring to the books uh, of the Old Testament that make predictions about the future, including the coming of the Messiah, where he would be born the powerful works that he would accomplish, the nature of his death, and there's even hints of his resurrection. Now, in verse 17, Jesus says this, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He didn't come to destroy it. He didn't come to change it. He didn't come to lower its standards. Because the law was given by God, and the law is a reflection of God's character. When the law says, for example, you should not steal, it's partially a reflection of the fact that God is not a stealer. Rather, says Jesus, I came to fulfill the law and the prophets. Now, to fulfill means two things, to fill up and to carry out. First of all, Jesus came to fill up our understanding of what the law was really saying, of what the scriptures were really saying. He came to fully explain the law and its purpose, to bring real meaning to it. And secondly, he came to carry out in and through his own life, death, and resurrection, and his ultimately his second coming, all that had been predicted by the prophets and to accomplish the purpose of the law. And so it's with that framework in mind that Jesus now gives the key verse of his entire sermon. I want you to look at verse 20. This is the key verse of the entire sermon. Jesus says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness, your goodness, surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, in making this statement, Jesus is undoubtedly very concerned that we are clear on what is required to enter his kingdom. He's concerned that we not get sidetracked like the Pharisees and the scribes did, and we're going to see that in a moment, by putting our trust in the wrong things. Jesus says, unless your righteousness or your goodness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the scribes, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus' statement here would have discouraged the people who heard him make it. Because when it came to this issue of righteousness or goodness, the Pharisees were, were the world record holders. Righteousness was their business. At least on the surface, they were pretty good at being good. 
And so when Jesus said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, that would have felt like me saying to you today, you have to be a better hockey player than Sidney Crosby or a better golfer than Phil Mickelson. But that was not what Jesus was getting at here. Jesus was actually being very critical of the Pharisees and the scribes and warning us not to follow their example. He was saying, don't go where they are. Don't get stuck where they're stuck because they're missing the whole point of what my kingdom's all about. And if you end up where they're at, if you have the mindset that they do, you'll never really be part of my kingdom. So let's look at some of the ways that, that uh, the Pharisees were, were off base, where they were sliding away from, from what, uh, the righteousness that God really wants for us. First of all, they sought after man's applause more than they did God's approval. If you turn over to Matthew 23, in that chapter, Jesus essentially um, hauls the, the Pharisees on the carpet. The, almost the entire chapter, he, he, he calls them hypocrites and, and just tells them the way it is. And in verse 5, he exposes one aspect of their hypocrisy. He says, everything they do is done for people to see. In other words, the religious leaders were double-minded rather than single-minded in their motivations. On the one hand, they wanted to love and serve God, but on the other hand, they also wanted the praise of people. Now, you know, in the same way, many of us want to serve and please God. However, when we are serving or helping others, if we really want the heart of Jesus within, it's important to ask ourselves, does my motivation come out of a passionate desire to please God or is it the recognition from other people that I'm really craving? Sometimes it's not always so easy to discern that. But there might be some questions that you can reflect on that might help you to discern what your motivation really is. For example, am I upset or do I get upset when someone else gets recognition for work that I actually did? Do I envy the abilities, the achievements of others, especially those who work in the same area or the same field that I do? Do I get a perverted sense of pleasure when someone close to me, either in my field or my family, when someone close to me fails? Am I able to praise and encourage the work of others who are in a similar field of endeavor as I am? Am I working myself to the bone to prove to someone that I'm important and indispensable? You see, the bottom line is this. When we can know that we have not surpassed the righteousness of the Pharisees, if we're more concerned with receiving the applause of other people than we are about pleasing God and God alone. Furthermore, the religious leaders... They tried to live perfectly on the outside. But they were oblivious to the state of their heart on the inside. Their righteousness was primarily external. They knew God's laws, but they didn't know God. Their focus in life was not on knowing and loving God more, but on keeping the rules. In Matthew 23, verse 25... Jesus exposed their hypocrisy again in this area and he said, you know, you clean the outside of a cup and a dish, but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. A little later he says, your hearts are cold and indifferent toward God. In verse 28 he says, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Now again, back in verse 17... Earlier, I pointed out that Jesus says there's nothing wrong with keeping the law. He didn't come to abolish it or to change the rules or to lower the standards. 
it's, it's perfectly fine to obey and to follow the law. But you need to understand that God is concerned fundamentally with matters of the heart. God is less concerned with the perfection of your life than he is with the attitude and the direction of your life and the attitude and direction of your heart. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, it says that people look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God wants our affection for him and our obedience for him to flow from inside, from a heart of love for him. He doesn't want us just going through the motions of our faith. If we dutifully do the rituals and the ceremonies, if we read the Bible, if we attend church, we pray and we even lift our hands in worship and even study and debate the Bible with friends, but inside we know that there's nothing going on between us and God then we know we haven't surpassed the righteousness of the Pharisees. You know, it's like a husband and wife who are very polite to each other, treat each other really well, care for each other, but there is no love, there's no passion between them. They're just functioning like glorified roommates rather than as lovers that God intended them to be. That's why Jesus summarized the law and the prophets with the greatest commandment. He said the law and the prophets can all be summarized in this commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all of your soul and your mind and your strength. That's what he wants from you and from me. That's what the kingdom is all about. Now make no mistake, these religious leaders actually thought that they were right with God. That's the frightening part. They didn't even realize that they were off base. They were, and yet they were blind to the fact that their hearts were cold toward God and they were just going through the motions. And that's why in Matthew 23, Jesus referred to them as blind guides. And why in Matthew 15, he called them hypocrites and he said, These people honor me with their lips. But their hearts are far from me. You know, in 2 Chronicles 16, verse 9, it says, For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. What an image! The God of the universe is searching through the whole world for hearts that are fully devoted to him. That is how much he craves and desires to be in a living friendship relationship with us. He is on a search. He's not looking for knowledge and rituals and and, and the, the right words. No, he's looking for a certain kind of heart, a heart that's alive, that's reaching out to him, a heart that wants to walk with him and talk with him all day long, a heart that boldly asks him for wisdom and for guidance and for power and for help. Because he longs to show himself powerful to us. It is this kind of heart that surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes. Thirdly, the Pharisees and the scribes trusted in their own righteousness to get them to heaven. Over in Romans chapter 10, verse 3, the Apostle Paul says this, and he's actually talking about the Israelites and the religious leaders and how he is praying that they might be saved. And as he talks about them in verse 3, he says, Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. What he's saying is is that the religious leaders, they kind of made up their own standard of righteousness. 
and they trusted in their own righteousness. They kind of said, well, you know what? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do this and 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 this. And as long as I'm doing that, everything should be, you know, great with me and God. And yet, starting in verse 21, Jesus reveals God's original intention behind the law. Remember, that's one of the reasons he came. He said, I, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. And he, this is exactly what he does. Starting verse 21, he begins to show the Pharisees what the law is really saying, what the intention of law is all about, and that they are far from keeping the law. Look at verse 21. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And I can just picture the religious leaders proudly patting themselves on the back saying, that's right, check, I got that one, I, I haven't murdered anybody. I'm clean. And Jesus follows up and says, but I tell you, that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. <laughs> Come again? Say what? Are you equating me hating someone with actually murdering them? In verse 27, Jesus says, you heard it said, do not commit adultery. That's right. Haven't done that either. Check. And then in verse 28, Jesus pulls up close to them. At least I can imagine him doing this. And he says, okay, so you've never committed adultery. Good. But let me ask you, do you find yourself at times fixated with the idea of having a sexual encounter with someone else or with someone other than your spouse? Because if you have, you've already committed adultery in your heart. And I can just hear them saying, okay, we're out of here. I can just see them throwing their hands up in the air and saying, this is an impossible standard. If you're telling me that we're murderers because we've been angry, if you're telling me that we're adulterers because we have some lustful thoughts, that we'll never please you because we, we, we don't love our enemies, then we may as well give up. We may as well cash it in because on this basis, no one can be this righteous but God alone. And Jesus smiles and says, exactly, exactly, that's my point. He says to them, you wrongly assumed that all you had to do to try to keep the law and follow the rules on the outside, you figured that's all that was required. I'm here to tell you that you're deceived. The fact is, despite all of your efforts to keep the law, you're a sinner. And there is no way that you're going to meet the standard through your own effort. And you know, folks, we're capable of ending up in the same place as these religious leaders did in Jesus' day. We often fool ourselves into believing that we are righteous by comparing our perceived righteousness with the unrighteousness of other people. It's pretty subtle, but often... We start out by identifying the dregs of society, the drug lords, the murderers, the rapers, rapists, and the assassins. And we say, okay, if 10 is God's perfect righteousness, if that's the perfect standard of righteousness, then people like this would be at the bottom rung. And we rate them a one. And we have no problem saying those people deserve to go to hell. And then we remind ourselves of people we know or we hear about in the news who are dishonest, who lack integrity, who are guilty of fraud and extortion, or perhaps they're unfaithful to their spouses, or they're verbally abusive to others, or, or they cheat and steal, they cut corners at work. They largely live self-centered lives, and, and we sort of say to ourselves, well, you know, they're, they're not as bad as the, the murders and all those guys, but... And we rate them a five. And then we look at the ones and the fives. And we figure, you know, we're not as bad as them. 
And so we rate ourselves a seven or eight. But then we begin to tally up a long list of admirable qualities that we possess. And our score goes a little higher. Now, mind you, you know, we're not thinking this consciously. This is just kind of below the radar a little bit. And so if, if we've never stolen from our company and we're kind to most people and we keep our word most of the time and we're faithful to our spouse and we support, you know, uh, we give to a charity or to church or we buy girl guide cookies. I mean, I mean, surely this puts us, you know, past eight. But there's more. You know, if we go to church a couple of times a month, month, if we usher on occasion, we attend a small group, we have a Bible on our dresser, if we have a sermon CD tapes littering our, our car, if we serve in the church nursery or work with junior high boys, which is worth a full percentage point in itself. <laughs> I mean, we figure we, we figure we deserve to be right up there, you know, 9, 9.5. And we say to ourselves, surely... That's good enough for God. It's just got to be. I mean, would a loving God quibble over a half a degree? Folks, this kind of thinking is widespread across our land. It permeated the thinking of the religious leaders in Jesus' day as they attempted to establish their own righteousness. And it permeates our culture today. Many people today just can't understand why we need a Savior. I mean, who needs Christ's righteousness when my own righteousness is plenty good? But the problem is, God isn't measuring our righteousness in relation to other people. He's measuring our righteousness in comparison to the absolute holiness of God. And last time I checked the Bible, God is not only holy, he's perfect. Take the water in this glass, for example. You know, it looks really good, so I'm going to drink from it. I have no hesitation drinking that water, and neither would you. Uh, unless, of course, you just saw me drink it a moment ago. But, but you remember back in your biology class days? where you took a simple drop of water and you put it under a microscope? What did you see? I mean, I can still remember, especially the girls in our class. As soon as they got down and started zeroing in, all of a sudden I heard this, ooh, ooh. And the reason was, is we saw dirt. We saw sediment. We saw germs, living creatures, herbicides. You name it, all kinds of good stuff. And all those contaminants in just a single drop of what seemed to be a very nice, clear glass of water. Now, you multiply all of those drops in a single glass of water, and you may never drink water again. But my point is, that glass of water is not as pure as you think it is. Now, you see, a day is coming when God is going to put our lives under a spiritual microscope, as it were. Every improper motive, impure thought, every devious plan, and much more will be exposed. And it will become painfully obvious to God and to us that we are far from scoring in the high eights and nines. That's a picture of our righteousness before God. And that's why the Bible says... We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, fall short of the perfection of God. In other words, on our own, we will never muster up enough personal righteousness to surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees, much less the perfect standard of a holy God. We can't save ourselves. Heaven is a perfect place because God is there and He's perfect. And since it is perfect, it only makes sense that only perfect people go there. Otherwise, it's no longer a perfect place once we get there, right? And we've just established the fact that we're not perfect. See, God knows that. 
He's known that from before we were born. And so he did an amazing thing. He commissioned his son Jesus to come to earth, God in human flesh, to live perfectly among people and then finally to die on a cross. And on that cross, Jesus willingly and lovingly took your place and my place of punishment and he paid for our spiritual crimes with his own blood. While Jesus was dying on the cross, God arranged for your shortcomings and my shortcomings to be placed on Jesus' account. And at the same time, he transferred the perfect righteousness of Jesus from his account to our account, making us clean and righteous and complete in God's sight. This is the only way, friends, for us to enter into the kingdom of heaven or in the words of Jesus, for our righteousness to surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes. We need to stop trusting in our own righteousness to get us to heaven and instead place our trust in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Friends, this is why we need a Savior. The word saved makes some people feel uncomfortable today in our society, but that is exactly what Jesus came to do. Romans 10.4 says, Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Notice it says that Christ is the culmination. What that's really saying, he is the fulfillment. Remember again in verse 17, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. He is the fulfillment of the law. See, the law... Let's just use the Ten Commandments, if you can put that in your mind. The Ten Commandments was given by God to help us to realize that we are unrighteous before a holy God. That we have attitudes, that we have actions that are not only separating us from God, but are actually destroying us. Some people, like the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they falsely believe that the way to heaven is to keep the law. In other words, to keep the Ten Commandments or to keep the golden rule. That's the way to get right with God. And yet the purpose of the law was never to make us right with God. All the law could do was to help us to see that we were missing the mark and point us to a solution. The law is like a mirror. Okay, imagine yourself, you're standing in front of a mirror, you've been in the dirt, and you look in the mirror, and the mirror tells you you've got dirt on your face. But the mirror can't wash the dirt off of your face. All the mirror can do is tell you, you got a dirt problem, sir. You need someone to clean you up. That's what the law does. That's what the Ten Commandments does. Galatians 3, 24 says... Therefore, the law, the Ten Commandments, I'm just using that as an example of the law. Therefore, the Ten Commandments has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But then look what it says next. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. We're no longer under the law. In other words, the law, the Ten Commandments, are no longer our master. The Ten Commandments are now our servant. And there's a difference. Because when the Ten Commandments are our master, we grow so frustrated because we can never keep them perfectly. Have you ever tried to do that? You can't keep them perfectly. That's what happens when they're your master. You just live a life of frustration. But the Ten Commandments now are our servant. Why are the Ten Commandments our servant? Because Jesus is our master. When you put your faith in him, he becomes your new master. That doesn't mean that God's law is no longer relevant. Doesn't mean uh, it, it's there to serve us. The Ten Commandments are there to, to, to uh, prevent us from hurting ourselves, from hurting other people. But it no longer has control over us. It no longer has this, this strange kind of authority over us. For Christ is now our master and Lord. And as we surrender our lives to him, he will guide us. He will empower us and give us the victory over temptation. A few years ago, I 
met a young woman who was struggling with deep issues that she faced her entire life. She had grown up in a home where she tried to please everyone, where, where a B-plus was never enough because it wasn't an A, and where criticism of everything she did was a regular occurrence. To combat this, she tried to live perfectly to measure up to the high standards that her family had for her. She was introduced to church, and again, she was faced with standards that she felt she could never reach up to, and in her Christian circle, friends. She tried hard to always appear perfect, to never slip up, but was inevitably faced with the reality of failure. She said to me, I only feel joy in my life when everyone is happy with me. Hmm. She described to me how lies had filled her thoughts. Negativity began to permeate her inner life even though outwardly she appeared happy and fine. She would replay these tapes, these lies in her head, constantly. Tapes telling her that no one loves you, no one cares about you, you're, 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 you will always be a failure. She lived like this for years, trying to make everything perfect, trying to live the perfect life while falling apart on the inside. She eventually realized that she was trying to seek the approval of everyone but God, whose approval is found, as I said, through faith in him alone. You see, friends, the approval of man will never satisfy. And when you're trying to seek the approval of man and the approval of God at the same time, you're setting yourself up for inward collapse and a life of deep frustration. Jesus calls us to live our lives seeking the approval of God and God alone. True freedom is found in living a life that simply abides in Him. You may feel that you're a consistent failure today, that you never measure up to those that are around you. You may feel like, you know, you've got to get saved every weekend because you're always falling short of the mark. God invites you to find your true identity and your rest in Him. You will not find fulfillment in your life by trying to live the perfect life in the eyes of other people. That will only come when you admit that you're a sinner. You embrace Jesus as your Lord and Savior and then allow him to live his life through you. In Luke 18, Jesus tells the story of two men. One man was a Pharisee. The other was a tax collector. And tax collectors in that day were despised by the regular people because a tax collector basically was seen as a traitor. A tax collector had turned on his people, had turned on his faith for money. He was despised. And this is what Jesus said. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like that tax collector over there. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all that I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus went on to say, I tell you, that this man, this tax collector, rather than the other, the Pharisee, went home justified before God. 
For all of those who exalt themselves will be humbled. But those who humble themselves will be exalted. You see, friends, that humble heart is what characterizes the kingdom of God. The difference between these two men, says Jesus, is the state of their heart. The one had a self-righteous heart that was confident in his own righteousness before God. And Jesus tells us that he left church that day unjustified, a sinner in God's eyes. Oh, he was a good man in the eyes of other people. But he was headed for hell. Because as Jesus would say later in his sermon, even though he did all these things, Jesus said, I never knew you. On the other hand, a humble, broken heart of this tax collector who knew he was a sinner, Jesus said he left that day justified before God. He was an evil man. He was a traitor, a loser in the eyes of others. And yet because he humbled himself, admitted he was a sinner, he not only became part of Christ's kingdom, but he was headed for heaven. Friends, it is only when God invades our lives that we receive the power to live a life pleasing to God. It's not by keeping all of the rules that we become right with God. No, it comes by humbling ourselves and crying out to him, Lord, I'm a sinner, I can't save myself. I need you, please, would you save me? If that's your heart desire today, if you're tired of going through the motions and you want Jesus to forgive you and invade your life and to join you in living the adventure that he's laid out for your life, I'm going to invite you to say a simple prayer along with me right now. That prayer, if it comes from your heart, is the beginning of a new journey with Jesus Christ that will transform your life from the inside out. Would you join me in this prayer? You can just say it in your heart. Just bow your heads right now and just say it. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross in my place. Thank you also for the invitation to be part of your eternal kingdom. Lord, I'm just tired of going through the motions. I'm tired of knowing about you but not knowing you personally. I want to be your friend. I acknowledge that I'm a sinner in need of a savior, that I'm lost, that I'm heading for a crisis eternity without you. By faith, I'm now placing all of my weight, all of my trust and my hope in what you did on my behalf on the cross. As a sinner, I realize there's nothing I can do to pay for my sin. So please forgive me of my sin. Cleanse me as you promised from all unrighteousness. Come into my life. Make me the person you want me to be. For I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Would you stand with me, please? Now, friends, on the authority of God's word, I can tell you, those of you who prayed that prayer from your heart, that you are now God's child, that you are part of God's eternal kingdom. You are righteous in the sight of God, not because of your attempts to be righteous, but because you are now in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ is in you and he is righteous. If you believe in your heart, then I'm going to challenge you to confess with your mouth the decision you just made. Let someone know, let me know, let our prayer partners know, let the person who came with you know. decision let's pray together Heavenly Father we want to praise you for your grace and for your eternal love and for demonstrating that love by sending Jesus to be our Savior we praise you Lord for your presence here among us we thank you for your word and the reminder today that unless 
our righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the scribes, we will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Thank you for showing us through these religious leaders of how we can put our hope, we can put our trust in, in the wrong things, how we can be deceived, how we can crave man's applause more than your approval, how we can trust in our own righteousness rather than in your grace, and how we can go through the motions of our faith, but inside be so far from you, so cold toward you. Oh Lord, remind us that you are less concerned with the perfection of our lives. You are far more concerned with the attitude of our heart, the direction of our heart, and that you want to be our friend that you want to walk and talk with us all day long. You want us to come to you boldly for guidance and wisdom and power. And so, Lord, that is our prayer. Until that day in which every knee shall bow and every tongue will acknowledge that you are Lord and King to the glory of God, we pray in Jesus' name. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God be with you. There are prayer partners up here. They would love to pray with you about anything before you leave. Be sure to do that. We'll see you next week.